Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 185 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for this Bar Cart Foundations episode where we select a single topic in the spirits and cocktail universe and examine it from a bunch of different angles so that you can become an armchair expert just by tuning in. This time around, we're going to investigate a cocktail with such a tremendous gravitational force on American drinking culture that it evokes memories of warm weather, white and pastel clothing, and of course, horse racing. The drink in question is the mint julep. And although we've touched on this cocktail in past episodes, it has such a rich history that it really deserves a whole episode to itself. But before we get all minty and horsey up in here, I do have one very quick and exciting announcement. We have just partnered with the good folks over at Rag Proper Flasks to bring you a portable beverage solution that's sleek, modern, and perfect for a nip or two on the go. If you head over to modernbarcart.com right now, you'll see their gorgeous 240ml break-resistant glass flask with a black silicone sleeve available for just 35 bucks, which is a good price for a high-quality hip flask. Now, let me tell you why we decided to go with Rag Proper as our inaugural flask offering. First, it's just about the most contemporary-looking flask we could find. It has a modern, fresh look and feel to it, but there's one huge feature that you need to check out for yourself, which is the sight glass that's built into the silicone sleeve. If you're a brewer or distiller, you know that a sight glass is a little gauge on the side of a big boiler or holding tank that lets you know exactly how much liquid is in that tank without having to guess or crawl inside. And in the case of these flasks, you've got a nice little window cut out of the sleeve that shows you exactly how much liquid remains. Because what's the worst thing about a flask? It's that moment where you go to take your last pull and you come up empty. Well, with rag proper flasks, you don't need to worry about that. You know exactly how much you're working with at all times. Last thing to note here, the silicone sleeves are removable and washable, which is great from a hygiene standpoint, of course, but it also means we can offer different colors. Each flask will come standard with the classic black sleeve. Very nice. But if you'd like a more daytime or brunch mode option, you can also pick up a light gray silicone sleeve for just six bucks extra. So head on over to modernbarcart.com to check out these sexy new flasks. And while you're there, maybe take a look at our new line of dehydrated citrus wheel garnishes, which we launched just a few weeks back as well. Both of these products, incidentally, would make excellent Mother's Day or Father's Day gifts, and supplies aren't limited, so get your order in while we've still got them in stock. Turning our attention back to the mint julep, I want to give you a quick table of contents for this Foundations episode. We're going to skip over the featured cocktail because there will be a few recipes we dig into later in the show, and I can't wait. Some of them are great, but some of them are pretty awful. That means what we're going to do is we're going to begin by trying to define what a julep is, where it comes from, and where mint enters into the equation. Next, we'll place its formulation in contrast to other drinks that were popular during its heyday, that time being 
sort of the late 1700s to mid 1800s. After that, we'll talk about its connection with the Kentucky Derby, which leads to a few fun equestrian mixological digressions. And we'll wrap with some tips for preparing mint juleps in the year 2021, just in time for the Kentucky Derby or whatever other excuse you might have for making them. With that, let's dive right in. One of the things we like to say about cocktails is that they're an American invention which is on brand for us since we came to America, looked at the people who were already here and said, thanks, this looks like it's ours. So in the interest of accuracy, I'm always very keen on making sure we're clear about what we mean when we reference a certain cocktail or cocktail family. And the julep is no different. We want to understand not only what we interpret as a julep today, but also where it may have come from way, way, way back in the deep past. The word julep was already in use for many centuries prior to the founding of the United States. In fact, its earliest form, according to linguists, is the Persian guleb, meaning rose water, which then migrated to Spain as juleb during the Arab conquest, and you can see how it's only a hop, skip, and a jump from there to arrive at our contemporary pronunciation of the word julep. But this begs the question, what does rose water have to do with anything? Well, it references one of the most common applications of the original Muslim julep, which is just a sugar syrup infused with some sort of herb or fruit. Just like in certain parts of the American South, the word Coke can be used to refer to soft drinks in general, my reading is that the Persian guleb is a reference to the original or preeminent julep flavoring, which was rose water, I guess. See, juleps were used medicinally to treat any number of maladies that, at the time, were attributed to an imbalance in humors. We didn't have germ theory when these Muslim chemists and medics were formulating their potions. So when you went to the physician and said that you had a stomachache, for example, you weren't given Pepto-Bismol or antacids. Instead, you may have been prescribed a julep infused with a particular herb or fruit that was purported to help with your particular malady. If there's one takeaway here, it should be that the placebo effect is statistically significant. As the Arab political influence in Europe waned in the 15 and 1600s, a number of their scientific and cultural influences remained. This is when we see the julep spread across Europe as an accepted health tonic that had the distinct benefit of being sweet, unlike some of the less palatable bitter brews in vogue during and after the High Renaissance. Right, This is a time when we still have a cultural memory of the plague, and we're willing to down just about anything to make sure we don't get it. So this we know. At the time of the founding of the first American colonies, the term julep was already in our vocabulary. But where did the booze come from? We don't exactly know, but we do know that it's we Americans who were responsible for putting it in there. In chapter 6 of his book, Imbibe, David Wondrich explains that in 1770, quote, it was considered medicine when Peter Thompson, a surgeon, was prescribing juleps compounded with things like egg yolks, chemical oil of cinnamon, and salt of wormwood. Yet in Virginia in 1784, John Ferdinand Smith, a Briton, traveling in Virginia, remarked that upon arising, the man of the lower or middling class drinks a julep made of rum, water, and sugar, but very strong. Now, to call this a julep is like calling a morning bong hit glaucoma medicine. This was the same kind of winking sophistry that allowed American drinkers to dub a morning cocktail, taking your bitters. End quote. Winking sophistry. 
is an interesting way of saying that if our founding fathers could find a way to put alcohol where it otherwise didn't belong, they'd go ahead and do it. So despite there being an existing medically useful definition of the word julep, it was quickly eclipsed in the newly independent United States by a more bibulous denotation. It's like in the office when Andy Bernard says, beer me that water. Colonial Americans were walking around saying, rum me that julep. And it's also clear that from the very beginning, mint was a favored garnish. Lots of sources from Wondrich's research and beyond confirmed that mint was viewed as a healthful plant and flavoring and was therefore a great excuse to have booze with your breakfast. In his book, Spirits, Sugar, Water, Bitters, Derek Brown quotes another Englishman, Captain Frederick Marriott, who wrote in 1840, quote, They say that you may always know the grave of a Virginian, as from the quantity of julep he has drunk, mint invariably springs up where he has been buried. End quote. Later on, American whiskey would replace rum and imported cognac as the favored base spirit in the julep, especially as the nation expanded westward and grain-based spirits were more locally available than rum in most places. Just sort of makes sense, geographically speaking. This gives us roughly what we would view today as a classic mint julep. A dram of American whiskey, a good dose of sugar, some water, ideally frozen, definitely frozen, and as much mint as you can fit in there. If you're familiar with the formal definition of a cocktail, you notice that the julep is missing bitters and is therefore not a true cocktail, but resembles that category of proto-cocktails that we call slings and toddies. This not only puts it in its proper category, but helps to explain why it predates the cocktail. In essence, the julep is just a little simpler. The bitters are conspicuously absent, and if you were to order this drink prepared at a bar or tavern, it would likely be tossed rather than stirred or shaken. In its best form, the mint julep is a less fussy cocktail that places an emphasis on cooling through shaved ice and an abundance of mint rather than sophistication of preparation or ingredients. So it turns out that despite its foreign origins, the julep is a very American libation indeed. The last thing we need to cover in the origins segment of this episode is the somehow ongoing dispute between the states of Virginia and Kentucky as to which commonwealth can claim the drink as its own. Of course, this is a useless, stupid debate. From what I can tell, Virginia's claim to the julep is that its constituents drank a lot of them back in the day, which is your standard enthusiasm for ownership argument if I've ever seen one. Real sophisticated. And Kentucky, on the other hand, seems to be under the impression that a mint julep can only be made with Kentucky bourbon, which is a fallacy so glaring that it almost has me sympathizing with Virginia for multiple reasons. So if you happen to encounter anyone who seems to have a very serious stake in this nationalistic debate, my recommendation would be to nod politely, seem sympathetic to their point of view, very important, and then ask them if they'll make you another one. Definitely don't bring up the fact that julep is a Persian invention. This episode is brought to you by Near Country Provisions. If you're like me, here are some things you might be like. You live in the Mid-Atlantic. You enjoy meat. You highly prefer that your meat is local, sustainable, and comes from ethically raised animals. And you'd absolutely love for someone to deliver it to your door once a month. If this sounds like you, then you need Near Country Provisions in your life. Head over to nearcountry.com and check out their different, highly customizable meat delivery packages, and also browse their growing seafood selection. 
As a thank you for being a Modern Bar Cart listener, you can get two free pounds of ground beef or bacon included in your first order after subscribing if you enter the code BARCART, all one word, at checkout. That's BARCART, B-A-R-C-A-R-T, at checkout. Your Country Provisions is the real deal, and I can honestly say that I'd recommend them even if they weren't a sponsor. The meat and the local farmers they work with are just that good. Now, back to the show. So, now that we know where the mint julep comes from and what sets it apart from other types of cocktails, let's take a look at how it became the official drink of the Kentucky Derby. To do this, we need to understand a popular distinction drawn during the mid to late 1800s between how people related to money and what it should be spent on. According to David Wondrich, once again from Imbibe, if you haven't read it, please do, quote, in the 19th century, there were really two Americas, two kinds of Americans. There were the ones to whom the idea of freedom upon which the country was founded meant something like, if I work hard, avoid temptation, and play by the rules, I will be unmolested in my enjoyment of the fruits of my labors. And the ones to whom it meant, nobody can tell me what to do. The Victorians and the sporting fraternity. While the first group tried to lead a measured life centered on work and the home with a weekly detour through the church, the sports, who came from all degrees of society, hung around in saloons and gambling halls, avoiding their civic duty to act all responsible and work long, sober hours for peanuts to increase the profits of other men. End quote. You can start to see here a distinction that would ultimately become the yawning rift between the temperance movement and those who favored strong drink. But for our purposes, it demonstrates how America managed to democratize the otherwise aristocratic sport of horse racing. Of course, the people who owned and bred the horses were insanely wealthy, but that didn't prohibit anyone with what he considered a bit of inside information from placing a small bet that could really pay off. This popular appeal is what drew thousands of people to the tracks for races like the Kentucky Derby, Preakness, and Belmont Stakes, the three races that today make up the Triple Crown. Although it was predated by the Belmont Stakes by eight years and the Preakness by two years, the Kentucky Derby has come to dominate the American consciousness when it comes to horse racing and, of course, mint juleps. Founded by Meriwether Lewis Clark Jr. Yeah, I'm not making that up. It's explorer William Clark's grandson. The Kentucky Derby ran its first race in 1875, which was a time in American history when cocktails were all the rage. Great time to be drinking them. It took place at Churchill Downs, the racetrack of the Louisville Jockey Club, which was organized by Clark a few years earlier, and continues to be held in the same location to this day. And if you were a Kentuckian in 1875, you'd probably be extremely bullish on your local whiskey, that had been receiving a lot of attention due to the complete absence of brandy imports caused by the phylloxera plague that had ravaged France in the two preceding decades. You knew I was going to bring this back to phylloxera, everybody. It always comes back to phylloxera. Anyway, legend has it that mint was planted at Churchill Downs when it was first built specifically so that juleps could be served at races. So at least in some sense, the drink was appreciated and even planned for by the folks who organized the event. It makes sense, then, that the mint julep would go on to become the official drink of the Kentucky Derby, with commemorative silver julep cups being designed and sold each year since 1939. 
These silver cups are an important reference to the aristocratic lineage of horse racing, but they also serve an interesting ergonomic purpose that we'll discuss in just a few moments. Before we do that, though, I can't let the other two legs of the Triple Crown go unappreciated for the mixological masterpieces that they have selected as their official drinks, and I hope you can sense a little bit of sarcasm in my voice right now. Let's start with the least egregious of the two. I think it's the least egregious. You might disagree. Anyway, it's the Black Eyed Susan, the official cocktail of the Preakness held at Pimlico Racecourse in Baltimore, Maryland. The good thing about the Black Eyed Susan is that I can't find an official recipe for it. And normally that would be a bad thing, right? But most recipes make this look like a confusing ham-fisted riff on a Long Island iced tea. Here's the recipe for the 2019 version of the drink. Yeah, it's so bad that they have to change it every year. Here it is. One part maker's mark. We're not even measuring, just just doing parts. One part maker's mark. One part DeKuyper cocktail peach tree. I don't know what this is, but I bet it doesn't taste like tree. One part effin vodka. That's not fucking vodka. It's E-F-F-E-N. It's the brand. Why? Why would you name your vodka that? Two parts orange juice and two parts sour mix. Finishing strong. Shake all ingredients over ice and strain into a glass over crushed ice. Garnish with an orange and a cherry. I assume that means each drink comes with a whole orange that you can peel and eat and a fresh cherry to wash it down. You have to guess, though, that at some point there was a modicum of logic that went into the making of this cocktail. It's named after the blanket of black-eyed Susans that gets draped over the horse that wins the race, so at least the concept hits the mark. According to the Baltimore Sun, quote, The drink was first served at the 1973 Preakness by the Harry M. Stevens Co., the longtime caterers at Pimlico Racecourse. It's said the team worked hard to make the drink have a pale yellow color, something that doesn't remain today. End quote. Ah, yes, a pale yellow color, the most elusive of all colors in the cocktail world to achieve. We certainly wouldn't want it to be a dark golden color like a real black-eyed Susan. No, that would be too on the nose. Listen, at least we can speculate that there's some lost recipe for the black-eyed Susan that's not as terrible as the one that I just read to you. But that, I think, is the only good thing we can say about this cocktail. Caveat emptor. Now, the Belmont Stakes' original cocktail is so bad that nobody's willing to say when it became the official cocktail. It, like the Black Eyed Susan, refers to the blanket of flowers draped over the winning horse, which, can we admit, is a little much? I don't know. Anyway, it's called the White Carnation. And here's the recipe. Two ounces of vodka, starting off strong. Half ounce of peach schnapps. Sounds like the 70s. Two ounces of orange juice. Definitely the 70s. Two ounces of soda water, or enough to fill the glass. Splash of cream. What? God, why? And an orange wheel garnish. Now, I don't know why this, to me, sounds worse than the Black Eyed Susan, but there's something about making a perfectly objectionable sweet vodka drink and then saying, you know what this needs? Heavy cream. That really triggers me. Right, because you know somebody came up with the bones of this drink and then got feedback from the board. I'm assuming there's a board somewhere saying that it has to be white because of the white carnations. And someone's response to that feedback was just 
to dump some heavy cream on top and call it a day. And then people had to drink it. People had to drink it for like years, probably decades. That's both horrifying and amazing. Anyway, in 1997, the official drink was changed to the Belmont Breeze, which was developed by New York bartender and King Cocktail himself, Dale DeGroff. The recipe for this cocktail has gestures to both the Black Eyed Susan and the Mint Julep and is as follows. One and a half ounces of bourbon whiskey or rye whiskey. One half ounce sherry, medium dry. One half ounce lemon juice, fresh. One half ounce simple syrup. Splash of orange juice. Splash of cranberry juice. Five mint leaves. Mint sprig garnish. Orange peel or slice garnish. That's a lot. When the New York Times reviewed both the outgoing and incoming official cocktails, they weren't exactly complimentary of either claiming that the Belmont Breeze was, quote, a significant improvement over the nigh-undrinkable white carnation, despite the fact that it tasted like a refined trash can punch, end quote. Even Dale DeGroff doesn't hit a home run every time. Finally, in 2011, the official cocktail of Belmont Steaks was changed to its current form, the Belmont Jewel, a cocktail that actually makes a little bit of sense. The recipe for the Belmont Jewel is one and a half ounces of bourbon whiskey, two ounces of lemonade, one ounce pomegranate juice. Shake these ingredients over ice, strain into a rocks glass over more ice, and garnish with a lemon wedge or cherry. And now, as we turn our attention back to the mint julep, I'd like to take a moment of silence for the many years of painful toil that it took the fine people at the Belmont Stakes to realize that their official cocktail should be a whiskey sour. Please remain silent and respectful during this guitar riff transition. Now that we know a little bit more about the history, context, and tradition that underpin the mint julep, let's talk about the important points of craft that can really take your creation to the next level. As I was conducting some historical research for other aspects of this episode, I came across a letter that seems to exist on some sort of family history blog. I kid you not. It's listed as a reference on Wikipedia. So I was skimming through this letter that's completely out of context for me, but I happened to really fall in love with its description of how to make a perfect mint julep. So despite the fact that I don't know or even really care about who wrote this, I'll read it here for you and link to the full text over on the show notes page. Quote, My dear General Connor, Your letter requesting my formula for mixing mint juleps leaves me in the same position in which Captain Barber found himself when asked how he was able to carve the image of an elephant from a block of wood. He replied that it was a simple process consisting merely of whittling off the part that didn't look like an elephant. The preparation of the quintessence of gentlemanly beverages can be described only in like terms. A mint julep is not the product of a formula. It is a ceremony and must be performed by a gentleman possessing a true sense of the artistic, a deep reverence for the ingredients, and a proper appreciation of the occasion. It is a rite that must not be entrusted to a novice, a statistician, nor a Yankee. It is a heritage of the Old South, an emblem of hospitality and a vehicle in which noble minds can travel together upon the flower-strewn paths of happy and congenial thought. So far as the mere mechanics of the operation are concerned, the procedure, stripped of its ceremonial embellishments, can be described as follows. Go to a spring where cool, crystal-clear water bubbles from under a bank of dew-washed ferns. In a consecrated vessel, dip up a little water at the source. 
Follow the stream through its banks of green moss and wildflowers until it broadens and trickles through beds of mint, growing in aromatic profusion and waving softly in the summer breezes. Gather the sweetest and tenderest shoots and gently carry them home. Go to the sideboard and select a decanter of Kentucky bourbon, distilled by a master hand, mellowed with age, yet still vigorous and inspiring. An ancestral sugar bowl, a row of silver goblets, some spoons, and some ice, and you are ready to start. In a canvas bag, pound twice as much ice as you think you will need. Make it fine as snow, keep it dry, and do not allow it to degenerate into slush. In each goblet, put a slightly heaping teaspoon of granulated sugar. Barely cover this with spring water and slightly bruise one mint leaf into this, leaving the spoon in the goblet. Then pour elixir from the decanter until the goblets are about one-fourth full. Fill the goblets with snowy ice, sprinkling in a small amount of sugar as you see fit. Wipe the outsides of the goblets dry and embellish copiously with mint. Then comes the important and delicate operation of frosting. By proper manipulation of the spoon, the ingredients are circulated and blended until nature, wishing to take a further hand and add another of its beautiful phenomena, encrusts the whole in a glittering coat of white frost. Thus, harmoniously blended by the deft touches of a skilled hand, you have a beverage eminently appropriate for honorable men and beautiful women. When all is ready, assemble your guests on the porch or in the garden, where the aroma of the juleps will rise heavenward and make the birds sing. Propose a worthy toast, raise the goblet to your lips, bury your nose in the mint, inhale a deep breath of its fragrance, and sip the nectar of the gods. Being overcome by thirst, I can write no further. Sincerely, S.B. Buckner Jr. End quote. Aside from the beautiful writing and maybe a little bit of gender-based stuff that needs to be updated, this letter does bring up some important mechanical nuances that I'd like to elaborate on. First, Let's talk ingredients. You don't need to source your water from a cool fern-lined stream or wild forage your mint, but using nice spring water or filtered water for your ice isn't a bad move when it comprises so much of the drink. And growing your own mint is pretty easy, so why not fresh pick it if you have the option? Also, be aware that mint does have varietals. Peppermint, spearmint, chocolate mint, mountain mint, and mint adjacents like lemon balm. There's lots of stuff out there, so try and be familiar with the aroma and flavor that you're going for in your end cocktail. In most cases, this is going to be spearmint, which is what's sold at most grocery stores. When sourcing your bourbon, go with what you like. Aim for something bonded that is over 100 proof and stay away from the top shelf. You're going to be sweetening and diluting extensively here, so I'd recommend something like an Evan Williams bottled in bond if you can get it. For sugar, the mint julep is one cocktail where you want it to be white and boring. It's there as a taste, not a flavor. So all your sugar has to do is bring some sweetness to the game. Now, after the letter I just read instructs you to do your mise en place, i.e. arranging your tools and ingredients, it has a few other tips that I really like. First, it acknowledges that the hallmark of a great mint julep is finely crushed, nigh-powderized ice. For this, you really need a Lewis bag and mallet, and I wish I could say we stock those on our e-commerce store, but it's just not one of those high-demand items, so we're holding off for now. But anyway, if you want to be authentic, that's the way to go. And the author's directive to crush twice as much ice as you think you need is also smart. This is because the smaller your particles are, the less space there is between them, meaning that it takes more to fill a standard space than it would if the pieces of ice were larger. 
This also has thermodynamic implications, which we'll get to in a moment. Next, our writer describes the step that almost perfectly mirrors a good old-fashioned, or mojito, the muddling of sugar and water with an aromatic compound, in this case, a single mint leaf. Now, I'll go out on a limb and say, stick a few mint leaves in there if you want. If you grow it in your own garden, mint is essentially free, so don't skimp if you don't have to. This muddling with sugar and water does two things. It activates the essential oils in the mint leaf and helps the sugar to start dissolving before the deep freeze of the ice inhibits that process. Both these things make for a more pleasant and balanced drink. Really, the only part of the instructions I don't like in this case is where the writer says to sprinkle some sugar in as you add the ice to your silver julep cups. To me, this seems like unnecessary theater, but hey, if it sounds fun to you, go for it. You'll notice that after he adds the ice, he wipes down the outside of the cup so that any frosting that occurs won't so much melt on the guest's hands as it will cool them and instantly evaporate. This is a hospitable gesture in that it prevents wet hands. It's the little things, you know? Then we've got the stirring of each drink in its vessel, waiting for that frost on the outside as a signal of proper chill and dilution. The interesting thing about crushed ice is that it's going to chill your drink way faster than cubed ice, and the metal julep cup is going to allow the guests to enjoy the cold in a more conductive and visceral way than if they were holding a glass vessel. It's a whole thermodynamic experience. The main thing I'd change about this final step is to put the mint bouquet in the cup after stirring because I can't picture a version of the cocktail that wouldn't come out completely chaotic otherwise. Those, though, in effect, are the steps you need to take to make a good mint julep. It's not overly complicated, but there are quality markers to try and hit along the way. The last thing I want to leave you with are a few more contemporary spins on tackling the mint julep that might make your life easier, faster, or just a little more scalable in case you're planning on hosting a larger style party in the future. Riff number one, consider infusing your bourbon with mint. This is roughly as simple as it sounds. I'd recommend if you're considering this using a wide mouth half gallon mason jar because the key here is making sure the mint leaves don't get too bruised. As soon as you start mashing these things up, you release the bitter flavors in the leaf, which is why you'll see bartenders smack or express mint garnishes rather than tear or muddle them in a lot of cases. So if you'd like to try an infusion in addition to, or as possibly a substitute for, fresh mint in your next julep project, we'd love to hear your findings. Please take notes on infusion time, mint type, and bourbon proof. Oh, and P.S. Don't use dried mint. It does not taste remotely the same. We know because we've tried. Riff number two, infuse your syrup with mint. This is going to break a rule that we just made in riff number one about kind of ripping up the mint leaves. But if and only if you're making a single large round of juleps that you expect will be consumed within a half an hour, then maybe it's feasible. The way I'd go about this is to make a simple syrup, chill it down, then... Right before I mix my drinks, throw a bunch of mint in there and blitz it up super fine in a blender or a food processor. The upside? Lots of fresh mint flavor. The downside? Little tiny mint shreds everywhere. In your teeth, on your glassware, everywhere. So great if you're impatient and need to make a single serving flight for a non-picky crowd, but not so great if you're the one doing the dishes. Riff number three. 
use mint tea. Again, let's be clear, dried mint doesn't taste like fresh mint, but it does complement it nicely. So what if you were to throw some mint tea bags into your simple syrup right before you take it off the heat and then let them steep for about a half hour before straining? This will add more depth to your drink and a slightly different mint profile than you might otherwise achieve. So again, this is kind of an experimental situation. If you do it, take some notes. We'd love to hear what your findings are. Finally, riff number four. Mess with the garnish. The mint bouquet garnish of a mint julep is where half the sensory magic happens. What if you could get your hands on something like lemon balm or fresh lemongrass? What if you snuck a leaf or two of basil or, God forbid, cilantro into your garnish? Listen, when you're hosting people, there's no harm in making them your sensory guinea pigs, just so long as you make sure that your experiments don't cause anyone to have an allergic reaction. So if you want to kind of play some funky games with people, I think messing with the garnish on the mint julep is precisely where you should start. That about does it for this Barkhart Foundations episode on the legendary mint julep. I hope you learned something, even if you were already very familiar with one of Persia's greatest gifts to the U.S. drinking culture. This should give you plenty of time to plan for this year's Kentucky Derby, which, by the way, will be held on Saturday, May 1st, 2021. So please message us on Instagram or email podcast at modernbarcart.com if you have any follow-up questions, and we hope you'll tag us to share what you cook up for this year's Running of the Ponies. Cheers. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed and a little bit of julep drinking historical research by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2021.